It's Window Nation's semi-annual sale, and it's a big deal. Right now, get 50% off all windows along with no interest for five years plus bonus savings when you schedule a consult today. If your windows leak, get foggy or hot, or you're paying high utility bills, that's a big deal. With Window Nation's semi-annual sale, you can replace your windows and save a big deal, too. Schedule a no-obligation in-home estimate now. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The date was January 30th in the year 2000. The St. Louis Rams, who at the time were known as the greatest show on turf, faced the Tennessee Titans in Super Bowl 34. The ending was unforgettable. Back to throw is McNair. He's got Kevin Dyson, reaches to the goal line. No, he falls at the one. Time runs out, that's it. The St. Louis Rams are the world champions as Tennessee comes up one yard short. And while it was an incredible ending, Isaac Bruce, who is the fifth leading receiver in NFL history and a member of the greatest show on turf Rams, he thought it was just the beginning. We were very much so in the mindset of we can not only be back to another Super Bowl, but possibly win probably two more Super Bowls. And with good reason. Kurt Warner was the reigning MVP on what would be a Hall of Fame career. Marshall Falk would be the MVP the following season in what would be a Hall of Fame career. Torrey Holt would lead the league in receiving the next year and go on to be 16th all-time on the NFL receiving list. Sure, they had growing pains because head coach Dick Vermeil retired after beating the Titans. But the Rams did return to the Super Bowl in the 2001 season, and a dynasty was born. But not the Rams dynasty. This would be from 48 yards out. And this this has been a year about Vinatieri and, and making some great kicks against the Raiders. Two of the greatest kicks that I've ever seen in my life. Here comes one of greater importance if he makes it. And it's right down the pipe. Adam Vinatieri. No time on the clock, and the Patriots have won Super Bowl 36. Unbelievable. Unbelievable is the word here. Because the Patriots weren't just underdogs. They were historic underdogs. In the history of the Super Bowl at that time, the Patriots were getting 14 points in that game. It was the third highest total in NFL history. And they won. They had lost to the Rams at home that very season and they won it was a cinderella story it was too good to be true in fact isaac bruce can tell you that one thing i'd say that was a little unusual i think guys were pretty much beating us to our spots 
um, as opposed to really playing on your heels and trying to catch up to where we were going. I hadn't seen that in probably three years offensively. The Patriots knew what was coming in that game. They knew the plays before they played out. And eventually, they got caught. Hello, I am Vince Quinn, and on this episode of Upon Further Review, we'll dig into the biggest scandal in NFL history. A scandal so big that its impact still clearly lingers 10 years later on. A scandal so big, it has its own name. Spygate. The story begins in 1994 where a young boy fresh out of Wesleyan University takes a job as a PR intern and a ball boy with the Cleveland Browns. His name is Eric Mangini. And on the Browns coaching staff, a fellow Wesleyan University graduate. His name is Bill Belichick. And in the 1994 season, these two develop a very strong bond. One that ultimately moves Eric Mangini from the PR side, business side of the operation, over to the football operations. And in 1995, Eric Mangini gets his first job as an NFL coach. He becomes an offensive assistant. But 1995 is a very tragic year for the Cleveland Browns. It's the last year that they're an organization before they move and become the Baltimore Ravens. And at that time, Bill Belichick, after developing this relationship with Mangini, He's fired, and he goes to New England with Bill Parcells. Eric Mangini goes with the Browns over to Baltimore for a year. But in 1997, when Bill Parcells takes over the Jets and Bill Belichick goes with him, Belichick requests that Eric Mangini be on the staff. And so they get reunited after a year apart in 1997 in New York. And so for three seasons... Eric Mangini has the opportunity to study and work under Bill Belichick directly. Mangini at this time is a defensive assistant, and Bill Belichick is the defensive coordinator. So they spend three years together helping Bill Parcells with the New York Jets until 1999, when there's a very tricky situation. Bill Parcells steps down as the head coach of the New York Jets, and the plan of succession was that Bill Belichick would take over the job as the Jets' head coach. And Bill Belichick accepts. But only for a day. You see, one day after taking the job as the Jets' head coach, when the press conference is called and the reporters are there and Bill Belichick is on stage, he resigns from the job. Due to the various uncertainties surrounding my position as it relates to the team's new ownership, Um, I've decided to resign as the head coach of the New York Jets. And in addition to Belichick's words there at the press conference, he also writes a note scribbled on a napkin. And it says, I resign as HC of NYJ. A very peculiar situation and an unexpected one. But Bill Belichick leaves the Jets, becomes the head coach of the New England Patriots, And Mangini follows him there. And you can see how strong that relationship is because Bill Belichick has taken Eric Mangini to two different organizations at this time. And when he goes from the Jets to the Patriots, Mangini gets another promotion. He goes from being the defensive assistant with the New York Jets to the defensive backs coach under Bill Belichick in New England. 
So Mangini at this point has gone from a PR intern to an offensive assistant to a defensive assistant to a defensive back coach all in the span of six years. This is the kind of power and influence that Bill Belichick has had over Mangini's life. And it's also a strong example of how Mangini learned so much from Belichick and was respected as a student of the game. So you see all of these factors combined and how bonded these two are. And in fact, their relationship goes beyond football. The thing with Bill is I owe him a lot. He taught me football. He was, you know, I read at my wedding. Luke, my middle son, has as uh, William as his middle name. And for over the next four years that Mangini and Belichick are working together in New England, their bond grows stronger and their success grows greater as with Tom Brady, they win three Super Bowls in four years. And as the team's status goes up and up and up, so does Belichick's, but also so does Mangini's. And in 2005, after winning the third Super Bowl in four years, becoming a dynasty, Eric Mangini is offered the job of being the defensive coordinator for the very team that started his NFL career, the Cleveland Browns. Romeo Cornell, who is with the Patriots at that time, offers the job, but then Belichick steps in. And he tells Mangini, don't take the job in Cleveland. Do not go with Romeo Cornell. Stay with me, and I'll promote you to my defensive coordinator. And you can see from that interaction how strong the relationship is between these two. You see how important Mangini is to Belichick now. He's become more than just a pupil. He's a very heavily relied upon and valued piece of what the organization is and does. So as a result of this friendship, Eric Mangini goes from being a PR intern to a defensive coordinator of a living, breathing dynasty in 10 years' time. And naturally, someone that accomplished on such an accomplished team is going to continue to gain recognition. And that's exactly what happens with Eric Mangini. So after one season of being the Patriots defensive coordinator, teams come calling. They're looking for the next young, great head coach, the next Bill Belichick. And the New York Jets believe they found that guy in Mangini. And so he accepts the job. And for Mangini, this is an amazing feeling. Being a head coach is as high up that tree as you can climb. You're now in charge of all of the calls. You have some say on the personnel. You know who's on your staff because you chose it. It's the way that you want to get things done. You're one of the faces of the franchise. You've made it. You're in a job that some people work their entire lives for in the business and never get. He's there in 11 years. This is a thrilling experience for him. And how does his mentor act, the guy that led him from the PR intern to this point, how does he react? Well, Bill Belichick is furious at Eric Mangini for accepting this job, going to the New York Jets, the team that Belichick despised enough that he stepped down as being the head coach of the organization after one single day. And so when Eric Mangini goes to get his stuff from his office and take it with him to New York, Belichick changes the locks. And Mangini's stuff is later mailed to him. And so a really strong and powerful relationship that led to three Super Bowls and the naming of a child 
is shattered. So now the year is 2006. Eric Mangini is the head coach of the New York Jets. Bill Belichick is the head coach of the New England Patriots. And it's a year that is in a way defined by handshakes. After the very first game that they play against each other, September 17th in 2006, the Patriots beat the Jets in New York. And after the game, it's a very awkward interaction. Belichick and Mangini meet at midfield. They shake hands, but it's really awkward. They don't really look at each other, and they walk away. Then a couple of months later in November, they play again. This time, the Jets traveling to New England. And the Jets win. 17-14 coming off a bye. Eric Mangini goes into New England, the place that birthed him, the place that spurned him, and wins. And from that game, another awkward handshake where Belichick doesn't even shake Mangini's hand. It's more Mangini grabs Belichick's arm, Belichick pulls away, and they don't speak. But if that drama wasn't enough, they got to play a third time in a playoff game. Eric Mangini leads the Jets into New England one more time, the place where they beat the Patriots just a few months ago. And while the game ultimately doesn't turn out being much of a contest. The Patriots win 37-16. The handshake drama continued where after this game, beating his pupil and establishing who is the better coach, who has the better team, Bill Belichick rushes out to the field to meet Mangini. He gets a cameraman. He shoves him aside and then he hugs him. And in a way, it seems almost spiteful. It seems rude given how Poorly they interacted over those previous games. How uninterested Belichick was in dealing with Mangini to now go and say, oh, well, let's hug it out because I'm better than you. So now the rivalry between the Jets and the Patriots goes to a whole new level because the Patriots and the Jets have been rivals from birth. They both joined the AFL in 1960. They're both placed in the Eastern Division. And so for literally as long as they've existed, they've played each other at least once a year, over 45 years. And during that time, there's plenty of dislike that builds up between the teams, between the fan bases. But now, this relationship has become something more. The gravity of Belichick and Mangini turned two great organizations into two men. And they had a dirty secret. We go back to the year 2000. Bill Belichick has just left the New York Jets and taken over as the head coach of the New England Patriots. His video assistant, Matt Walsh, who has been with the team since 1996... He's given a peculiar assignment. He's asked in the fourth preseason game to go and film the hand signals for the offensive and defensive coordinators of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, think of the way that we use hand signals. If you give a thumbs up, you approve. If you give a thumbs down, you don't approve. If you give a middle finger, well, that's something else entirely. But there's communication that can be said through the use of the hands. And in the NFL, there's no difference. Teams use it to call blitzes. They use it to make audibles at the line of scrimmage. It's how teams communicate. And especially in that era of the game, where headsets aren't in the helmets of the players, hand signals are heavily, heavily valued. 
So Matt Walsh does his job. He films the signals for the offensive and defensive coordinators of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the preseason. And the interesting twist is that they play the Buccaneers just a few short weeks later for the very first game of the regular season, which means that New England went into the game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers knowing what the signals were for blitzes and audibles on both sides of the ball. Now, the Patriots would lose this game, 21-16, to but the beginnings of the plan were in place, and the Patriots would go on to build one of the most intricate and despised systems in the NFL. It went like this. A member of the Patriots video department would attend every game. For that game, this person would disguise themselves, whether it was putting black tape over their Patriots logos on what they were wearing or wearing credentials that said Kraft TV, meaning the TV network owned by Patriots owner Robert Kraft. And using this disguise, the Patriots would film the opposing signals of offensive and defensive coordinators of their opponents. This footage was then cross-checked with league-provided game tapes. So imagine it's 3rd and 10. There's five minutes left in the third quarter. Well, the Patriots would watch that play on the game film, and then they would go and look at the illegal film. And what they would examine is what kind of hand signals were used And what kind of play did the opponent run? By doing this, play by play, all throughout the entire game, the Patriots were able to develop enough of an understanding of what the hand signals meant for the opposing teams. So most of this decoding is done by a man named Ernie Adams. Now, Ernie Adams is considered to be a right-hand man of Bill Belichick. And over the course of his career... He's well-respected within the NFL, known as being incredibly smart, considered to have a photographic memory, and is labeled as the football research director for the New England Patriots. So Adams would decode all of this footage after the game. Then he would store it in a secret library at the Patriots facility. And when it came time to play an opponent that the Patriots had tape on, Ernie Adams would review that tape, go to the coach's box, and keep his eyes on the coordinators of opposing teams. What hand signals were they using? Were they the same hand signals that they had filmed in the past? And did they still mean the same thing that they did in those previous games? If it got to the point where Ernie Adams was confident in what those calls were, well, then he would communicate with the Patriots staff on the sideline and say, hey, coach, Whenever the defensive coordinator puts a fist in the air, that means the middle linebacker is going to blitz. That means they're in a cover two scheme, whatever it might be, and the Patriots would react accordingly. Now, one of the major counterpoints to this that you hear is people will say, well, everybody did it. It wasn't just the Patriots that stole signals. And to an extent, that is true. And Isaac Bruce explains how he stole signals himself when he was a player. Stealing signals and finding signals is part of the game. If you're just on the field or if you learned in your film study, you know, what a defense would, would adjust to from an offensive standpoint. And, you know, if they pick up some hand signals there, that's, a, that's all cool. It's all within the game. And, uh, you know, I myself would oftentimes try to get an advantage on a defense by learning or listening for signals that are being called by a defensive player. I mean, it'll help me 
from that standpoint. And if it's done on the field, like I said, or if it's done from film study, you know, it's all fun and good. But if you go to an extra, uh, the next level as far as, you know, what they were accused of, I think it's not good for the game. It's not good for the players individually. And I think it takes away from the integrity of, of the game. It does. Because according to NFL rules, taping signals is illegal. And that's what the Patriots knowingly and willingly did for years. And it goes even deeper than that. Because in 2006, before the start of the season, the NFL sends out a memo to all 32 teams. It's strongly worded, and it discourages the filming of signals. And sources have told me that this was a nudge towards the Patriots to say, hey, everybody in the league knows that you're doing this, and you need to stop. But without actual punishments on the line, the Patriots ignore the memo, and they keep doing exactly what they've been doing from the start of Bill Belichick's tenure. They continue to illegally film hand signals. And during that season, there's two particular instances where NFL teams, fed up by the way that the Patriots have handled all of this, react and respond. The first is in Green Bay, where the staff at Lambeau Field shuts down the Patriots' filming of the game. The second incident involves the Patriots and the Colts in the AFC Championship game, just two weeks after Bill Belichick beats Eric Mangini in New England. He goes to Indianapolis, and the Colts decide that they will not allow any cameras that are not associated with the broadcast crew to be filming during the game. The Patriots lose, the Colts go on to win their first Super Bowl with Peyton Manning, and the drama is about to explode. So now we're back in 2007. It's one year after the relationship of Eric Mangini and Bill Belichick has fallen to shreds. And at this time, the Patriots are dealing with internal drama. Dion Branch, a former Super Bowl MVP, is in a contract dispute with the organization. And during this time, the Jets allegedly reach out and try to convince Branch to get a trade to the Jets. And given the fact that Eric Mangini has been with Dion Branch and worked with Dion Branch, this is not a very surprising thought, whether it happened or not. So the Patriots go ahead and file formal tampering charges against Eric Mangini and the New York Jets. It's another layer underneath the awkward handshakes and underneath the locked office door that blocked Eric Mangini from getting his stuff in New England. This is another piece of the complexity of the relationship between these two men. And on September 9th, 2007... They play a game that will live in NFL infamy. It's week one of the regular season. There's a sellout crowd at the Meadowlands. And the Jets are looking for revenge. They've lost to the Patriots in the playoffs just last year. The division rival. And leading up to this game, Eric Mangini reaches out to Bill Belichick. It's about the spying. As the head coach of the New York Jets, my responsibility was to whatever competitive advantage, no matter how small, my job was to make sure that my team had that and that my team was protected. So I wanted to shut it down if it came to our stadium. So that was the discussion we had. 
look, if this is happening, shut it down. And that wasn't the only message that Belichick received. The NFL sent another memo to all 32 NFL teams, and it was about illegally filming hand signals. They had done this in 2006. They do it yet again in 2007, just before this game takes place. It's again a nod at Bill Belichick and his history, his reputation of illegally filming. But nothing changes. Because on that day, Matt Estrella, he's a 26-year-old video assistant for the Patriots at that time. And he's on the sidelines. He's wearing a Kraft TV credential. He's spying. And the Jets' security... Well, they know exactly what to expect, and so they identify Estrella very quickly into the game and confront him. But the problem is that Estrella keeps denying that he has anything to do with it. He says he's not spying. He says he's with Kraft TV. He says the practice is innocent, and no, he will not hand over the videotape. Now, make no mistake about it. Matt Estrella's continued denial is the single most pivotal point of this entire scandal. All Matt Estrella has to do in this situation to relieve the Patriots of the incredible, massive burden that will forever hang over their heads with Spygate. All that Estrella has to do is shut down the filming that day, pack up the camera, hand over the tape, and call it a wash. Because the jet security, they're well aware of the practice. And for Eric Mangini, he says himself that he's not looking to turn the Patriots in. It was never about, let's shut it down, let's report it to the league. Nothing good has come from that. And uh, I had a very close relationship with Bill. I really respect and like the crafts. They were great to, to me and my family. So it was never the idea of, let's go get those guys. But when the denials are consistent and blatant and against the rules... Jet security has no other choice but to get the league involved. And that's when hell breaks loose. Because remember, this is clearly against the rules. The NFL sends out a memo to all 32 teams on September 6th, literally three days before this game takes place in New York. And in the memo, it says, quote, videotaping of any type including but not limited to taping of an opponent's offensive or defensive signals is prohibited on the sidelines, in the coach's booth, in the locker room, or at any other locations accessible to club staff members during the game. It couldn't be put out in clearer terms. And so for the Patriots, they have nobody to blame but themselves. They knew it was illegal. They had been warned many times. And Mangini, who is the close former friend and co-conspirator in the operation, tells Belichick personally to not do this in New York. And Belichick still goes ahead and spies on the New York Jets. It's the ultimate showing of arrogance. And frankly, the Patriots needed to be punished. But who was doing the punishing? That's a fair question to ask in 2007. Because Roger Goodell is an unknown at this time. He was named commissioner just over a year before Spygate broke. And in 2006, it was a very calm year. There were no labor issues or strikes to resolve. The TV contract money was flowing. The ratings were great. 
And so when this controversy comes along, when this egregious breaking of the rules comes along, Roger Goodell is faced with the first major crisis of his career as the NFL commissioner, and it happens to be the biggest case that the NFL has ever seen. And he handles it well. Because four days after the Patriots have been caught, Roger Goodell comes down hard. He finds the Patriots $250,000. Bill Belichick is personally fined $500,000. And the Patriots are docked their first round draft pick. It's the harshest penalty the league has ever seen. And to follow that up, Roger Goodell issues an emergency order What he says is that the Patriots need to reveal anything relevant to the investigation to the league office. Imagine what this statement means when Goodell issues that. Because he's asking Bill Belichick and the Patriots to give up all of the footage, all of the notes that they've compiled over the years. Seven seasons of NFL football, 132 games in total, and three Super Bowls. He's asking for all of that to be assembled and boxed and sent to the league office for investigation. And the Patriots comply. On September 20th, 11 days after the Patriots have been caught cheating, Roger Goodell says that the Patriots have complied with the request. But here's the curious thing. September 22nd, two days after Goodell acknowledges that he's received the tapes, The Associated Press reports that the NFL destroyed all evidence of the investigation. Wait, what? All evidence of the investigation? 132 games, three Super Bowls, rampant cheating that the league has known about for all of this time, and they conclude the investigation in two freaking days? How is that possible? How ignorant... Are they in handling this case that they decide that two days is enough time to go through all of these tapes, all of these notes, verify how intricate this has been and how long it's been going on for? How bad has the cheating been? We'll never know. And the rumors of how the league office destroyed the footage, well, they're sad. There's a story that members of the NFL front office, some of the highest paid, most responsible people in the entire sport, got together in a room with all of this evidence that shows that teams have been cheated for seven years of football. Seven years that fans have paid for tickets to see their team play the Patriots. Seven years that fans sat in front of the television and spent three hours of their day with hope and optimism that their team would win. Seven years and three of them where fans travel across the country to watch their team play in the Super Bowl. All without knowing that the Patriots are cheating the entire time. How does the league office handle this situation? Well, they literally put these tapes on the ground and jump up and down on them until they shatter. That was their solution to the problem. That's what Roger Goodell, as a new commissioner, decided was the best direction for his league and the best thing to do for his fans. It's disgusting. And Goodell follows it up 
with an equally terrible reply. When he's pressed, Roger, why did you destroy the tapes of this major investigation and do it when you've only had them for three or four days time? At the maximum, how could you possibly decide that you need to destroy them outright? And he says he was preventing teams from gaining a competitive advantage. That doesn't even mean anything! Unless head coaches are breaking into the NFL headquarters and stealing the tapes out of them, then there is no possible scenario in which this is an acceptable answer. And yet, that's what Roger Goodell says. And Arlen Specter, who's the senator of Pennsylvania at this time, he's not buying it either. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't sell that in kindergarten. Uh, at least where I went to kindergarten, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't sell it. And so he calls for action. It's uh, my judgment. Uh, that there ought to be uh, an impartial investigation, an outside investigation, uh, like the investigation that baseball had with the uh, help of former uh, Senator uh, George Mitchell. But it's easier said than done. My staff and I have uh, tried to contact a couple of dozen people connected with the uh, NFL, and we got a stone wall uh, uh, everywhere uh, along the line. And that stone wall will go on for eternity. There would never be an investigation from Arlen Specter. There were no more answers given by the league. They considered the issue over and done with. Fans of the Rams, the Panthers, and the Eagles, teams that had played the Patriots in the Super Bowl during the Spygate time frame and lost, they weren't given justice. And players like Isaac Bruce, they're still asking questions to this day. Was, was it needed? Maybe for them it was. Did it benefit them? I mean, only they can say. So, um, you know, we turned the football over. Um, who knows if, you know, what they filmed or what they saw from us benefited them. But, uh, you know, you can always scratch your head and, and, and ask yourself why. why. Why do you need to do that? That's it for this edition of Upon Further Review. I want to thank the other people that made this possible. John Barchard, James Seltzer, Brandon Lee Galton. Also, special thanks to Isaac Bruce for being available for this episode. You can listen to the entire interview with Isaac Bruce at BGN Radio's Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash BGN Radio. I am Vince Quinn. You can find me on Twitter at It's Vince Quinn, and I'll talk to you soon. 